to Mark chapter number 2, Mark chapter 2. I appreciate you praying for me and my family. I think I'm starting to feel a little bit better. We uh, Every year I get into a game of tug-of-war with my allergies. I don't know if you're like this, but uh, once the Bradford pears start to bloom out, I was driving down the road, and uh, I was thinking to myself, what's the matter with people planting all these Bradford pears? They stink, man. They mess up your allergies. I was dry. I was coming home, you know. I was just mad, and, and, you know, I was feeling bad. And I was thinking, what's the matter with all these people? You'd think God gives some people sense, not planting things in their yard. And uh, I started to pull into my yard and saw the beautiful Bradford pear trees that I have planted in my yard. So it, uh, sometimes we are the problem, amen. And uh, so I appreciate you praying for me, though. I, I, think I'm, I think I'm on the right side of it. I always, my, my allergies, it's like they're trying to make their mind up as to whether it's really spring or not. And so usually if I get out and mow the yard, uh, I authoritatively convince my allergies that it is indeed springtime, and it seems like then uh, my immune system sort of kicks in and, and uh, we get a little relief from it. So I appreciate you praying for me. I am feeling some better. Pray for my family. Uh, little Schofield is uh, sick. He's got a bit of a stomach bug, and uh, we have reason to believe it'll be a quick thing. In fact, he's already feeling some better. And uh, Lawrence uh, had it as well, and he seems to be doing better, so you can pray for them. More than anything, pray for Mama. She's the one running on fumes, no sleep, amen. So uh, pray for Leah. She's at home taking care of the boys. Mark chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd like to be in reading in verse number 1. I think this is a familiar passage of Scripture. You know, I I'm, I probably say that just about every time we preach, and uh, but I hope it is familiar to you. If it's not, I hope before we're done tonight that it is and that God speaks to your heart through it. Mark chapter number 2, verse number 1. The Word of God says, and again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. This is speaking of Jesus. And it was noise that he was in the house. Straightway, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. When they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. When they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. And this is what they were saying. Why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying we never saw it on this fashion. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you'd take your word, wield it efficiently, effectively in our lives, and in such a way that you might receive the glory for what's done in our hearts. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you a simple message tonight on this thought, getting them to Jesus. You know, when we read this passage of Scripture, I'm sure it was not lost on you that though we are reading about a man that is physically debilitated. We're reading about four individuals that pick up this man and physically carry him on his sick bed to the Lord Jesus. We're reading about the literal tearing up of a literal roof and the literal letting him down. That though we are talking about things that are explicit and factual and literal, 
At the same time, I think we have, in some ways, a picture of what the responsibility is of the believer in bringing people that have a malady and a sickness. I'm not going to say worse than what this man has, because this man was a lost man. And that's evident by the fact that the Lord Jesus says, Thy sins be forgiven thee. This man was a lost man. His biggest problem was not those broken or lame legs. His biggest problem was the darkness of his heart. And they bring this man to Jesus, and Jesus forgives this man, redeems this man, and then, just to uh, exemplify his power uh, to lesser hearts and lesser faiths, he raises this man from his sickbed, and makes him physically whole as well as spiritually whole. Uh, and I think in this we have a reminder of what our responsibility is in a broken and lost world in bringing men to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, what is soul winning? Soul winning is bringing men to Christ. Now, what I mean by that is this, that our purpose in sharing the gospel with people is to put them face to face with a decision concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't mean that we physically take them to Jesus. I do not mean that our faith operates in lieu of their faith, that we can pray them to Jesus against their will. But what I mean to say is men's lives are changed when they come face to face with the reality of Christ. And what we're doing as soul winners, as Christians that are seeking to share the gospel, is to bring men face to face with that decision of what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. Now, we don't physically pick a man up and take him to Jesus, but here's what we do. We do pick up the Lord Jesus Christ in the form of the Word of God and the truth of the Gospel, and we carry that truth to the lost and dying world and share with them what Jesus Christ can do for them. When we think of this passage in this light, I think there's a few statements we could make that will frame our message. One, I would say tonight that Christ is present, powerful, and willing to save. Did you notice what it said in verse number 1? It says that he entered into Capernaum after some days. And I like this phrase, it was noised that he was in the house. It's almost like a doctor that is in the house or a dentist that is in the house or any other service industry that you might go by and you're wondering whether or not there's going to be somebody there, if the open sign is going to be on the front door, if your uh, problems can be taken care of, if your needs can be met. I'm just glad to report to you tonight that the Lord's in the house. Uh, he's open for business. He's still saving sinners. He is present to save them. We don't have to worry whether God dwells on some far off planet or celestial avenue. The Bible tells us that the word that saves men is nigh unto us, even in our heart and in our mouth that we may believe it. Uh, the Bible says today's the day of salvation. A man can be saved even right now. One of the great truths of the resurrection, we're getting ready to come into the Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and the great truth of the Resurrection Sunday is this, that Christ is alive and is present to save men. I think so often we uh, we allow things to be a little overcomplicated. Uh, you say, preacher, how do you know that Buddha couldn't save a man? Because he's dead. How do you know that Joseph Smith couldn't save a man? Well, he's dead. How do you know that Mary Baker Eddy couldn't save anyone? Because she's dead. Uh, how do you know that Muhammad couldn't save a man? Because he's dead. But the Lord Jesus Christ, He's alive. He is present to save. He's powerful to save. He's able to do that. I love one of the things, I mean, man, it gets me excited to preach. And I guess we all sort of need it on a midweek prayer meeting night. You know, we're all tired, worn out. The world's been kicking us around. And and I think God designed it such 
uh, that we'd be able to come and gather in the house of God and listen not only to the uh, prayers that burden our hearts, but the praises that emanate from our lips. Because I'm reminded every Wednesday night when I get up to preach, I'm reminded that Christ is able. Because I've been listening to you. I've been hearing what God's been doing in your life all week. And it's a reminder that He's powerful. He can save. And then He's willing to save. He's willing. If we'll just get men to Him and if they'll receive Him, He'll do His part. He'll do the saving. One of the things I think we need to emphasize to the lost person is if there's a question about your salvation, that question is not God's. That question is yours. Uh, there's no question whether God wants to save you. Uh, there's crowds today, and what I mean by that particularly is the Calvinist crowd, although they're not the only one, but the Calvinists would have you believe there is a question as to whether God wants to save this sinner or that sinner, this group or that group. Well, I read in my Bible that He tastes of death for every man, that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should believe. You can't bring the gospel to the wrong sinner. Uh, God loves every one of them. He's willing to save them. So we see that Christ is present and powerful and willing to save. Then I notice the second thing, and that's this. Men must be brought to Jesus for Him to save them. Now let me clarify and be very plain in what I mean when I say that. Uh, it does not mean a person has to be in a geographical location to be born again. I was saved as a 10-year-old boy in my bedroom, alone, by myself. I wasn't alone. The Holy Ghost was there, but... Uh, there was no human being that was in that room with me. Uh, you may have been saved at a church altar. God bless you, man. I think that's wonderful. Uh, you say, Preacher, do you have a problem with sinners coming to church to get saved? No, I don't have a problem with anybody coming to church to get saved. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, whether they're church members or whether they're anybody. I mean, if you're lost, you need to get saved. I think an altar is a precious place to get saved. Uh, but I don't mean necessarily that a person has to be in a geographical location. But what I mean is this. They must be faced with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not going to just be born uh, fleshly speaking, naturally speaking, biologically speaking. They're not born in a saved condition. We could talk about the age of accountability and the grace of God, but suffice it to say that even a child that is yet in innocence uh, is not the same thing as a saved person that is a child of God and knows Christ and has been born again into the family of God and in the awareness of all those things. I think God in His grace makes allowance and, and gives uh, account for those uh, young children. Uh, but I say that to say this, no man is born as a Christian. You've got to be born again to be a Christian. Now somebody's going to say, preacher, it's Wednesday night. We all know all this stuff. Yeah, but here's what I want you to understand. Those lost people out there, they're not just going to trip into getting saved. Somebody's going to have to tell them about Jesus Christ. Uh, listen, we ain't living in times where the public schools taught the Bible as their basic reading uh, curriculum. We're not living in times where you can just throw a rock and find a church that preaches the true unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not living in a time where it is in popular culture to know who Christ is in the truth of Scripture. Uh, sinners, if they're going to come to Christ, we're going to have to take Jesus to them in the form of the gospel. So men must be brought to Jesus for Him to save them. It's not going to happen by accident. Uh, we're going to have to take the gospel to them. There's some churches, and I hope we're not this way. I don't believe we are. I believe we make a legitimate and Christ-honoring effort. We see uh, people saved uh, through that effort. There's churches around. The only time anybody ever gets saved is when a lost person stumbles in looking for a handout and accidentally falls under conviction. Nobody's going out and trying to win people to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, we're going to have to go out and give people the gospel. And then I would say this tonight. We can only bring them. We cannot make them believe. The role of these men was not to save this man. And I'm going to say a word for redundant tonight about what the Lord says. The Bible says when He saw their faith. Uh, when it says there, it's not talking about just the four. But when it says there, it's not talking about just the one. 
Uh, what it means is not that the Lord uh, saved, uh, allowed their faith to stand in lieu of that man's faith, but rather that the faith of these men in honoring God and bringing this uh, man to Jesus Christ was honored by the Savior. But it was still that man placing his faith in Christ uh, that resulted in his sins being forgiven. Uh, we can only bring them. We cannot make them believe. Their responsibility was not to save this man. Their responsibility was not to heal this man. They had one role, and that was to get this man to the Lord Jesus. Now, here's what we often say. We'll often say, well, we can't make them believe, so why bring them? But this very passage is an indictment against that frame and way of thinking. People say, well, preacher, the world's so wicked, and, and you know, society's so rotten, and we don't see revival like we once did, and so what's the use in any and all of it? Boy, aren't you glad somebody didn't say that about you? I'm glad nobody said that about me. I'm glad somebody loved me enough to tell me the gospel. I understand our role is to bring them, and I understand we cannot make them believe, but you know what this passage tells me? That there are many that would believe if only some man would bring them. If these four men, and it's a great emphasis of this text, if these four men had not brought this man to Jesus, his life would have never changed. The problem was not that there was not somebody that wanted to believe. The problem was that there was nobody to help in bringing that one that would believe to the Lord Jesus so that he would know what to place his faith in. In other words, there's folks out there. The greatest lie of the modern church uh, is that sinners are not interested in the Savior. It's just simply not true. Now, I will agree with you that we live in a, a framework where people think they already know about Jesus. When you begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what you'll find? Uh, you'll find that sinners still know they're lost and they still need a Savior and they're waiting for someone to tell them that truth of the gospel. Uh, the devil has propagated this lie, I think, really in a lot of churches that were complicit in laziness and apathy. They didn't want to go out and try to share the gospel anyway and so they were all too ready to believe this lie that you can't win people to Christ. But that's just simply not true. If people won to Christ every single day. People born into the family of God. They're sinners that need Christ. So this passage reminds me of these four truths. Christ is present, powerful, willing to save. Men must be brought to Jesus for Him to save them. We can only bring them. We cannot make them believe. However, there are many that would believe if only some man would bring them. So as we look at what these men did in this passage, what can we learn about this endeavor of soul winning, of sharing the gospel, or we could say it this way, of getting them to Jesus. Well, the first thing I see is the requirements for getting people to Jesus. You see, the truth of the matter is it takes effort. It takes deliberate, willful effort to bring men to Christ. Now, it's true you may every now and then in your life find yourself in a situation, some sinner brokenhearted, God's already been working on them and the harvest has already been brought up and it's just about to fall off and perish and the Lord in His mercy, really not towards you or me, but towards that sinner cross their paths and they just sort of fall into your lap and you win them to Christ. But the reality is most of the time, it's going to take going out and getting people, sharing the gospel, reaching them. What does it take? Well, I noticed this, number one, it took perception. Uh, the Bible nowhere, and this is one of the great misnomers, and, I, and I, I'll be honest with you, I, I read over this and the account in Matthew and the account in Luke uh, of this story. I read over it several times because I don't want to be mistaken in what I'm about to say because I've heard it so much. I have so often heard men say that these men were friends that were bringing this man to Jesus. Now, while that could be true, the Bible does not forbid it, nowhere does the Bible say that these four men knew this man that was sick, were friends, cared about him, loved him, had any connection to him. Nowhere does the Bible say that. 
All that we're told is that these men saw this man and said, we need to get him to Jesus. I'd say this tonight, and part of our problem, we'll win our friends to Christ, but we won't win the stranger to Christ. We're praying for family to be saved, and there's lost folks that are strangers to us all around us. We're praying for our children, praying for our parents, our siblings, our neighbors, pretty much anybody we already know, because we think it's going to make it easier for us. Now, if you get out and share the gospel very often, you'll find out real quick that those folks aren't the easy crowd. They're the hard crowd. The easier crowd is the person that you do not know. But I'd say this tonight, these men, they didn't go after a friend. They didn't go after a family member. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see those people that you love saved. But you're going to skip over. You're going to look over. You're going to pass over a lot of lost people looking for Christ while you're waiting for those select few that you have a heart for to come to the Savior. I think we need perception. They saw this man. They noticed him. They didn't close their eyes to the needs of this wretched individual. How easy is it, man, just to walk by and plug our ears and cover our eyes and just ignore, or even worse, to sit around and complain about the brokenness of this world when you and I are the only people that have the remedy for that brokenness. Uh, we spend so much time, I tell you, and I won't, and this is what I'm about saying, even a political statement, but politics is just, it, it's a rot. It's a corruption. Paul, I understand that, that human government's ordained of God. I understand that God can use them as ministers of His righteousness and His will. But I'm saying that the, the, the sport and religion of politics that exists today is a rot. It's something that has corrupted almost every facet of our way of life. And that includes, by the way, the way that God's people treat the world around them. So often, man, we're, we're more interested in, in complaining about the political shortcomings in society when the reality is the problems in society, I know you don't like to hear this, uh, and don't listen, don't tell Tucker Carlson I said this, but the problems in this society are not political in nature. They're spiritual in nature. Don't Listen, don't tell Sean Handy, he'll come looking for me. Uh, don't tell old Maddow or whatever her name is. But the reality is the problems in this society are not political in nature. They are spiritual. The politics of it is just a manifestation of a deeper spiritual need. And the problem is we've done got caught up in the symptoms of it and we're ignoring the sickness. Uh, the truth of the matter is what's going to change this world is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just saying this, we spend a lot of time complaining about things that we and we alone as the church of living God have the answer to. We spend a lot of time focusing on and obsessing over things uh, that uh, that we think ought to be different and ought to be checked and ought to be changed. I'm not saying those things ought not be changed. I'm just saying the avenue and the path to changing those things is not going to be through the means of politics. I was thinking about poor Sam and Carolyn. They was asking prayer for the border to be open. I thought, man, if they just smuggle them uh, kids down to Mexico, they'd get them in like that, you know. I thought, how unfortunate, you know. It don't matter whether Republicans are in office or Democrats are in office. The Canadian border ain't opening no matter what. Amen. Southern border may flip back and forth. But that Canadian border, they've got that locked down, don't they? Uh, the truth of the matter is this. Politics ain't going to solve, fix any of it. The answer's not in those things. Rather, it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they had perception how easy it is just go past broken, lost, dying people and never take a thought as to their eternal need. Number two, it takes participation. You know, it took four to get him there. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because God provided four. It took four to get him there. Three wouldn't, wouldn't have been enough. It would have been too few. And by the way, and, and I'm not going to get into a geometry lesson, uh, but if three had been forced to carry him, then one poor fellow would have had to do done twice the work 
as the other two. The only fair, equitable, and efficient way to get this man to Christ was with all four people participating. You know, each had a corner. Each had a corner. And it wasn't enough for three to carry. Four had to carry. You remember in the New Testament when Paul, speaking about the gospel of Christ, he says this, that one planteth and another watereth, but God giveth the increase. And what he's saying by that is that uh, winning a sinner to Christ, it's always, and I'm, I'm careful how I use this word, uh, but it's it's cooperative and cumulative in nature. What I mean is this, that before Henry Ford ever thought about a uh, about an assembly line, God already had that trademarked. He already understood that sometimes uh, it's uh, better and more efficient to allow one man to plant and another man to water, but in all that, it's God that giveth the increase. In other words, you have a part and I have a part. My part in winning this sinner to Christ might be different than yours. And your part in winning this sinner to Christ might be the same as what mine was in winning that one to Christ. At the end of the day, man, you say, Preacher, well, how do I know what I do? Uh, well, just grab an open corner. Just grab an open corner. So what do you mean, Preacher? Well, just look for, look for an open door with somebody that needs the gospel. You'll find out real quick whether somebody else is already carrying another corner. You'll find out real quick when they start asking you, hey, you know, I heard about this cross thing. What is that all about? You'll find out somebody's already got the other corner over there. Somebody will say, I heard a preacher say one time that, uh, that, that baptism couldn't save you, that you had to have faith. Well, what is that? Somebody else got that other corner. Sometimes you'll come in, you'll be the first one to show up to the bed, and they won't know a thing. But you know what? God's got somebody else coming along to pick up that other corner. I'm saying it takes participation. Uh, we've got to get in. We've got to grab the corner. Can I ask you this? Who's carrying your corner? Who's carrying your corner? Is nobody carrying it? Could it be there's sinners waiting to know Christ, but somebody's not carrying the corner? Uh, could it be that you're at the back end of that process and, and, and there's a sinner that's wondering, that's waiting, almost like the uh, Ethiopian eunuch that's got a copy of the Word of God in his hand and he's wondering who this man is and, and who the Messiah is and, and all he needs to know, he just needs somebody to come up beside the chariot and say, hey, do you understand what you're reading there? And preach Jesus unto them. But your corner is empty tonight. It takes your participation. Number three, it takes pity. It takes pity. I, I thought about this, and, and you know, I, I had a grandmother that was uh, invalid. She was bedfast for most of her life, and, and thankfully she had people, you know, my, my mom and aunt and uncle that loved her, and she had a husband that loved her, and people that took care of her, and she was not so far gone mobility that she could not sort of help take care of herself. But I thought about this man. He has laid on this bed for who knows how many years. He obviously has no one regularly to take care of him. That's why these four men are bringing him as a last-ditch effort to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, I don't want to get graphic, but can you imagine how disgusting that bed must have been? Now, this is a man that can't get up. He has no means to clean himself. He has no means to tend whatever bed sores, wounds that he may have. Any sort of hygiene would have would have just been barely there at the best of it. And then even if... All of that had been so, even if he had been hygienic, we understand this bed, it wouldn't be like today where you'd change bed sheets and uh, maybe you'd throw them in the washer. I, I mean, even if he had been perfectly hygienic, just a man laying on that bed out in the hot sun would have been enough to make that thing filthy and rancid. I'll tell you what most of us do. Oh boy, I don't know. Lord, if you want me to say that, I'll say it. Most of us come up to the bed and there's an empty corner and we go, ooh. I don't want to touch that. In other words, we see sinners in their brokenness. 
And let me tell you how you're going to find sinners in their brokenness. In their brokenness. Uh, listen, we're, we're waiting for the, for the president of the bank to come along our way to win them to Christ. That's already got everything squared away and already in suit and tie and everything looks nice. Uh, you know, we're, we're waiting, we're waiting for somebody that already knows all the right language and understands all the right things. We're looking for somebody with a, with a fat wallet and with good manners. But you know, when you find sinners, you find them in their brokenness. I'll tell you part of the reason the church don't win. And I said, when I say the church, I mean the church uh, with a capital C. I, and it's probably true of Walridge. Let's just be honest, probably true of Walridge too. But I mean the church at large. You know why we don't win sinners to Christ the way that we used to? Uh, we've gotten too selective in our fishing methods. We're going after a certain type of fish. And can I just be frank to you? There ain't many of them out there. And even those that are out there like that, listen, the ones we're passing by, God would make them greater than what that fish we're pursuing after is if we get the grace of God in their life first. I think about your life, what a mess you were in. Think about how nasty your sickbed must have been when somebody loved you enough to grab hold of the corner, say, I know it stinks, I know it's filthy, I know it's diseased, it's probably got fleas and parasites and everything else, but, but this man needs, needs Jesus. And I'm willing to risk all that. I'm willing to, even though it's undesirable and it's unpalatable, I mean, listen, most of the time, the open doors and opportunities we get are with people that we would consider an absolute mess. What does that tell you? It tells you those are probably the people closest and readiest to receiving Christ. There is nothing wrong with that sinner that the grace of God can't fix. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing wrong with that sinner that the grace of God can't fix. Say, but preacher, they're addicts. Yeah, and the grace of God can fix that can make them addicted to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in the book of Corinthians. You say, but preacher, they're, they're thieves. Yeah, that's exactly right. And God can take them uh, just like he took Matthew the publican and just uh, like he took uh, old uh, uh, Zacchaeus, uh, who was a robber and a thief, and, and changed them in the grace of God. You say, preacher, uh, that person, they're, they're, they're immoral and, and they're loose in their, in their way of living. Yeah, just like he took Rahab the harlot, just like he took Mary Magdalene. There's nothing wrong with them that the grace of God can't fix. And such were some of you. So go ahead and pick up the corner. Go ahead and pick up the corner. We need, we need pity. And then I would say this, we need persistence. They were immediately met with obstacles. The devil would not give this man up easily. Uh, they come and the house is crowded out. I'm talking about blowout. I'm talking about chairs. I'm talking about they couldn't even get in at the door to get this man inside. And I tell you how most of us reasonably would have responded. Reasonably. We would have said, well, we'll just have to try again tomorrow. But you see, they understood a basic fundamental truth. This man was so sick, he may have not had a tomorrow. Can I say this to you tonight? Hey, listen, we may be reaching sinners that may not be physically sick, but just like that man, they may not have a tomorrow. You may not have a tomorrow. There was a sense of urgency that permeated their attitude towards this endeavor. And they were persistent. Uh, they pressed on, even destroying the roof of the house to get the man to Jesus. Total abandon, in other words. Uh, they said, temporal things, who cares? So what about temporal things? Hurt feelings, I don't know about you, if it had been my roof, my feelings would have been hurt. Hurt feelings, doesn't matter. All that matters is that this man be brought to Christ. Now, I'm not saying we need to be inconsiderate. I'm not saying that we need to be rude or impolite in the way that we deal with people. And I'm certainly not advocating you go out and start tearing people's roofs up. Somebody say amen to that. But I'm saying we need to emulate the persistence these men have. Rarely. Rarely, rarely will you win someone to Christ the first time you witness to. 
Rarely will you win men to Christ the first time that you witness to them. Or maybe let me say it this way, the first time they've been witnessed. Uh, there are times, particularly when you go out and, and seek strangers with the gospel, most of the time, uh, if you win them to Christ, it'll be the first time you've witnessed to them. But it ain't the first time somebody's witnessed to them. It takes persistence. And in your life, particularly dealing with people that you know, it'll be rare that it'll be the first time you talk to them. It takes persistence. So we see the requirements. Well, what was the response? Verse number five. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, I see, and this is very simple. I'm not going to dwell on it. The sinner received him. The sinner received him. Uh, we treat that like it is the most unlikely thing possible. But do you know that God has designed that this very thing be the means and process whereby men come to know him? In, in other words, here's what I'm saying. People say, preacher, does soul winning still work? It's the only thing that works. I'm going to say that again. Uh, it, 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 you may not need it, but I'm going to say it again. It helps me. Preacher, does soul winning work? It's the only thing that works. It's the thing God chose. It's the only thing that works. Some of these other things that men say work only work in as much as they have a different goal than soul winning does. If your goal is to build a large ministry, well, there's probably uh, secular ways and worldly ways that you can do it to get a large ministry. But that's not what God's trying to do. Uh, you say, preacher, how can we get a bunch of people in the church house? Well, there's a lot of ways you can do it. Church downtown gives people $5 gas cards every single year. Gives a bunch of them. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying, you want to get people in. I'm not criticizing it because I'm going to be standing in line, Brother Tim, to get my $5. I'm going to try it. I'm going to put on masks and try to go through three, four times if I can. That gas, man, Biden there, I tell you, it ain't cheap. What I'm saying is this. If your goal is to get a bunch of people in the house, well, there's a lot of ways to do that. But you see, here's what God's doing. God's calling out a people unto Himself from amongst the Gentiles. He's saving them by His grace. He's winning sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing. And if that is your business, then there is only one way to do that. And that's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, God hath chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them which would believe. It's, it's the only way. People say, is it the best way? It's the only way. Is it still a good way? It's the only way. Uh, will it be a good way in, in the future? It'll still be the only way. It is the only way. If we're not doing that, we're not doing God's business. So we see the sinner received him. Number two, I see the scribes ridiculed him. Now, I'm not going to go into the depths of it. We could, and, and we'd probably be somewhat helped by it. But can I just point something out? There's always going to be somebody that scoffs, ridicules, criticizes, or otherwise maligns the attempt to win people to Christ. Uh, I, I would just say this, and uh, I, I think I think I was going to say maybe I'm being too rough, rough on these scribes, but I don't think I am. I'm probably not being rough enough when I say what I'm about to say. Um, they sure enough weren't helping this man. I found that the people that want to sit on the side and criticize the way that you're winning people to Christ rarely ever win people to Christ themselves. In other words, it's not like they're coming along and saying, hey, let me show you a better way to do that. I can abide some man coming along and showing me a better way of executing something, of, of doing something. There's nothing wrong with that. But most of the time, they don't want that. All they want to do is sit along to the side. I, You know, I, I dealt with this years ago. Uh, when, Whenever we, we've been doing our church camp, they've been doing it long before I came. And, um, you know, Walridge was never particularly bad about it. But you'd have a little bit of it, just like you do anywhere where the kids come back from camp. Man, they'd be on fire and they'd be excited and uh, and, and ready to do something for God. And, and I'd have people occasionally say, well, you know, they'll get over that. They'll get over that. 
And my attitude was always, look, maybe you did. But let's pray to God in heaven that they don't. Because if if they get over it and we done got over it, everybody's got over it and we're done for. And there was always this sort of, and again, not amongst many people, but, but there would be a handful that, well, you know, they got that camp religion, they'll get over it and everything. You know, maybe part of the reason they find it so hard to serve God is because everybody's so cynical. Everybody's such a critic about it. Uh, maybe, maybe if they had a little encouragement, go on and do something for God and stay on fire for Him, maybe they'd find it a little harder to get out and to get messed up. All I'm saying is this, there's always going to be a crowd that wants to set and prognosticate on what you're doing wrong and how they do it better and how they do it different. You say, preacher, is there a better way and a worse way? Well, yeah, probably. I'm not saying that we cannot refine our our approach in, in sharing the gospel. I'm not saying that there aren't people that have more tact and more patience and, and, and have a sharper mind about it. But I'd say this, the problem is not that we're lacking superstars. We can't even feel the whole team. That's our problem. Our problem is not that we've run out of MVPs. It's we ain't even got enough to put a full stream. If people just get out and start sharing the gospel, we'd see a difference made. So instead of sitting around, well, you know, they do it this way, they do it that way. I've shared this before, but I'll say it again because it fits right here. My pastor had somebody criticize him years ago. He said, I don't like the way that you witness to people. And he very simply asked him, well, how do you do it? And I said, well, I don't do it. And he said, well, I like my way better. Oh, my way better. So the scribes ridiculed him. But then I see a third group here, and they're actually not even mentioned here. They're, they're silent. And that's what I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them the silent. They show up later at the end of the passage. You remember what it says in verse number 12? Uh, it says at the end, insomuch that all they all they they were all amazed and glorified God, saying we never saw it on this fashion. Uh, now, the person that speaks out and criticizes Christ, and, and, and really what he does is he blasphemes the Lord is what he does. The man that does that, he he is a, a scribe. Where there are several of them, says certain of the scribes. The Bible says the whole house was full. I don't think it was just full of scribes. I think there were a lot of people here, and I think the scribes were some of them. But that means this: there's several groups. There's the sick man. There's Jesus. There's the scribes. Uh, there's the men that brought this man. But then there's just a crowd that's there, and they ain't saying anything. I'm going to call them the silent. You know what I notice here? The silent regarded. Whenever the scribes cry out and, and, and begin, you know, when they, when they blaspheme in their hearts and, and the Lord then, then sort of castigates them and, and, and exposes them in verse number eight, immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? And the Bible does not say that that crowd began to shout down the Lord Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that the crowd spoke up and said, yeah, what the scribes are thinking. I'm wondering this. No, you know what they did? They just sat there silent. You know what they were watching? They're watching to see what Jesus would do. They're watching to see how this was all going to play out. They had not yet made up their mind about him. They did not make up their mind until this man was healed. Not just when he was forgiven, but when he was healed. You know what that tells me? There was a group that was there that was watching and thinking about who this man was. In other words, there's the crowd you're trying to witness to, but then there's the crowd around the crowd that you're trying to witness to. And sometimes geographically there'll be people around that will hear you. But even beyond that, there's people in that person's life that they're close to that know them that they're going to talk to and they're going to go over these things with and, and speculate and talk and discuss. I'm saying that it reaches further than just that person. So we see the response here. The sinner received him and the scribes ridiculed him, but the silent regarded him. Well, what was, what was the result? Well, it's very simply, and I, I'm not going to dwell on it, uh, let's just read verse 12, say a word, and, and we'll be done tonight. It says, and immediately he arose, 
took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. So three things. One, we noticed the sick was converted. God changed this man's life. God can still change the lives of sinners. He does it every day. Uh, you and I, if we're not being uh, diligent, responsible in sharing the gospel, we may not see it. But just because we're not seeing it does not mean in other people's lives that are being diligent and are being dedicated that they're not seeing it every day. Uh, listen, I, it's not lost on me how wicked the world is, but that's no hindrance to the gospel. The world was a wicked place when the gospel was first given. Uh, the world has always been a wicked place. And I'd say this, if it wasn't a wicked place, the gospel wouldn't mean much in the first place. In other words, the gospel isn't too weak for the wickedness of this world. We might be too weak to take the gospel to the wicked of this world, but the gospel, it's not like the gospel's not up to the task. It can save any and all that come unto Christ. It's capable. The problem's not the sword. The problem's us. The problem's not the seed. The problem is us. The problem's not the light, nor even is it the darkness. It's us, the candle, if we're not emanating so the sick was converted. Number two, the scornful were confounded. Um, the, the, you say, what does confounded mean? Well, it means he shut them up. There was nothing they could say about it. Whenever they saw what he did, and, and, and we could spend a lot of time really diving deep into, into what the Lord says, that, that is it any easier to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, than it is to say, thy sins be forgiven. Can I say this? Sometimes we regard the changed life a greater miracle than the forgiven past. But that's not how God reckons. He says, if I tell this man to get up, and he gets up and goes on. Is that any easier than what I've done? He's not saying they're both difficult. He's saying, I've already done the hard part. I've forgiven him of his powers. I've already done the hard part. Sometimes we get discouraged if we win someone to Christ and, and they don't ever turn out at church or they don't ever get baptized. Sometimes we don't ever see him again and we say, well, you know, I guess that was a bust. No, listen. If they were genuine in receiving Christ, and I understand every man that's in Christ is a new creature, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. I understand all that. I'm not, I'm not disregarding that. I'm just saying, even if we never get to share in the glory of that changed life, the greater miracle is what God did when He saved them and they believed on Him. That's what the Lord Jesus teaches here. He says, I could tell this man to get up and go walking off, and that might impress you, but the thing that really impresses God is that this man could have his sins forgiven. So we see the scornful. They were confounded. They had nothing to say. I found this. When folks when folks want to drag you down in serving God, the best thing to do, don't fuss with them. Don't fight with them. Just leave them behind. Just go on. Go on and serve God. Go on and do something for God. Uh, chances are they're not going to physically stop you. Most of the time, here's what they want to do. They want to be a weight around your ankles. They just want to slow you. Uh, they want to try to drag you down because they don't want to go forward. So... If you're not going forward, they feel better about standing still. You don't have to fuss. You don't have to fight. You don't have to be their enemy. You can love them. You can pray for them. I'm not saying that you have to uh, move geographically or move church. I, I, all I'm saying is just go on and serve God. You say, preacher, there's folks that criticize. Yeah, there always will be. Go on and serve God. Uh, you say, preacher, but there's folks who's mean to me. Hey, listen, you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. I'm not trying to be ugly, but I'm just saying, if the only thing we ever deal with is somebody criticizing us, poor pitiful us, I think we'll live. I think we'll live. Uh, this is the same crowd that's complained for 50 years about T-ball giving every kid a trophy. 
And then we want to get all tied up, knotted up. If somebody criticizes us or if somebody's ugly, somebody's mean to us, let's just go ahead, put a band-aid on it, rub some dirt in it, and go on and do something for God. Oh, we just need to go on. The scornful, they were confounded. God will deal with them. God will convince them. But then I see this, the spectators were convinced. Uh, the Bible says there at the end, they were all amazed, glorified God, saying we never saw it on this fashion. You know what's amazing to me? Those four men, uh, this is how God does math. God does math different than we do math. Those four men were trying to bring one sinner to Christ. Now, we would say that's a pretty poor return, these four men investing their time for this one man. But you know what God did? God took that investment and yielded a return many fold above what their initial investment was. You know, that's how God does things. He, he uses the analogy of sower and seed. And, and the sower's out there and he's throwing the seed. But he expects back more than what he put in. One seed ought to yield a lot more than just one plant. It ought to yield many, many years or many, many fruits. And then from those, more plants and so on and so forth. I, I'm saying this, God can do something way bigger than what we think he can. Way bigger than even what our simple investment is. This has always been God's way and God's means. God could have started with a mass of people, but he started with a small crowd. Uh, the Bible likens the kingdom of heaven to that mustard seed that's planted and grows up into a great tree and all the birds take shelter under it. In other words, God can start with small things and do something big. I see these spectators, they were convinced it affects more than just the people you're talking to. So here's the question I have. Who's carrying your corner tonight? Are you carrying your corner? If you're not, chances are that corner's not being carried. You say, but preacher, there were three other men and three couldn't have got him there. Wouldn't it be a shame for those other three men to be wasting their time all because the one refused to pick up their corner? The fact is, what we do for Christ is meaningful. There are people we can reach and there are people that won't be reached unless we'll pick up our corner and carry it. Let's bow together tonight. The altar is open. If God has spoken to your heart, why don't you meet him in this altar and talk to him about whatever he's spoken to you about, whatever in your life it may be. Uh, why don't you meet him down here? If he spoke to you, it must be important. So don't put him off. Don't ignore him. He dealt with you. Come down and deal with him. Father, bless our time together. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.